everyone, this is Maria Lipman and our Porno's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. The amendments to the Russian Constitution were enacted in early July, after a public vote that was heavily criticized by legal experts and other analysts. Some even referred to the amendments and the way they were adopted as a constitutional coup. Whatever the criticism, the thoroughly revised Constitution is now in the books. But the issue of the constitutional amendments, over 200 of them, has since faded away and all but disappeared from the public discussion. This is hardly surprising given a wave of dramatic events of the past months. Mass political protests erupted in Khabarovsk. Belarus has become the scene of a popular uprising against President Lukashenko. Armenia and Azerbaijan are at war. Parliamentary election in Kyrgyzstan was followed by political turmoil. And in Russia proper, there is Alexei Navalny's poisoning. The COVID-19 pandemic that seemed to subside is again on the rise and the economy is in bad shape. No wonder people have all but forgotten about the constitutional amendments. If there is something people remember, it is the zero amendment that enables Putin to run for two more six-year terms in 2024 and 2030. But this is hardly different from the ever-present perception that Putin is a leader of no alternative. Putin's leadership for many years has been seen as an immutable reality, a synonym of political stability. While the public may have lost interest in the constitutional amendments, the Russian lawmakers are currently working on adjusting national legislation to the revised constitutional framework. The amendments include much more than extending Putin's unlimited political dominance. The 200 changes to the National Charter can be roughly divided into political, having to do with the distribution of political power, social, related to socioeconomic issues, and ideological that regulate the sphere of ideas and symbols. For instance, some of the constitutional amendments would toughen punishment for the dissemination of false information about the activities of the Soviet Union during World War II. Some commentators have expressed concern that this would imply a criminalization of any critical interpretation of the Soviet policy during that period. In this episode of Porno's Eurasia podcast, we will talk about this legislative work and, more broadly, the government operation aimed at altering the political power configuration, as well as what these developments portend for the 2021 Duma election. My guests are Ben Noble, Assistant Professor in Russian Politics at the University College in London and Senior Research Fellow at the High School of Economics in Moscow, and Nikolai Petrov, Senior Research Fellow at the Chatham House and Ben's colleague at the High School of Economics. My first question is to Ben. When did the Duma start working on revising the legislation based on the new amendments? What is the procedure? Do lawmakers have to rely on the Kremlin administration for which bills to consider and in what order? How many bills will the Duma have to discuss? How many is it considering now? Thanks, Masha. Lots of questions. I'll try to address all of them. So Putin personally introduced eight draft laws into the state Duma on the 22nd of September. But I think even though these are the eight draft bills that have been introduced that formally are being presented as changing federal level legislation in line with the constitutional changes approved in the nationwide vote, 
There are other ways that we can see in which lawmaking in Russia has been affected already by these constitutional changes. So there was a case of a bill introduced even before the 1st of July, even before the nationwide vote formally meant that these constitutional changes came into force, which included the constitutional wording that wasn't yet in effect. So there's already been for quite a while an impact of these constitutional changes on lawmaking in Russia. And more broadly, people like Pavel Krasininikov, who's a co-chair of the Constitutional Working Group and also a chair of an influential Duma Committee on Legislation has said that other initiatives have been informed by the values, by the spirit, by this general constitutional reform project. So we've seen some of those initiatives being introduced into the Duma even before the 22nd of September when Putin introduced these eight draft laws. When it comes to who's really calling the shots, I think it's really the case that the presidential administration is in the driving seat here. Not only are these presidential bills, they're important presidential bills. So we know that Putin personally is invested in them passing, and it means therefore in passing quickly and with as few amendments as possible. The problem there, though, is that because of the coronavirus, the number of Duma plenary sessions has been reduced. And also the Duma is at the same time as these eight draft laws having to consider the 2021-23 budget bill, which is no mean feat in, in any situation. There has been evidence that the level of scrutiny regarding these bills hasn't been great at some of the meetings of the lead Duma committee that's dealing with these bills. It seems as though really there haven't been discussions. There's just been an up-down vote whether committee members approve or not. We know that the Federation Council is scheduled to look at these bills on the 3rd of November, which means that these eight draft laws have to pass all three Duma readings by the end of October, which is really really quick. More generally, I think the, the Duma has more leeway in dictating the timetable for the passage of government bills, and it can be much more critical regarding government bills. But as I say, insofar as these are Putin-sponsored important bills, the presidential administration will be dictating terms, will be setting the timetable. I mentioned that these are eight draft bills. We're expecting more than 100 bits of legislation that are implementing these constitutional changes. But the bills that have been introduced so far relate to various areas. The most important bill is the new federal constitutional law on government, but there are also bits of legislation relating to the constitutional court, the human rights ombudsperson, the procuracy, the FSB, foreign intelligence, uh, a bill on security, and also on the judicial system. I mentioned that the bill on government is the most important. And in fact, very recently, within the last hour on the 13th of October, that bill has been adopted by the Duma in first reading. Okay, so this is the first one, right? The one on the government is the first one, and the, yes. um, the first reading is already over. So you mentioned 100 altogether, and only eight have been submitted so far. So are we in for a very long process here? Yes, I think so. We knew from statements from people like Pavel Krasininikov, I already mentioned who he is, earlier, we knew that the federal constitutional law on government was the most important insofar as that 
implements changes relating to how the government is formed, what the different responsibilities and authorities are of the president versus the state Duma. And when I say 100, there are even more than 100. And that's just a, a sort of rough approximation that has been mentioned a number of times by senior level officials. So we are really in for the long haul, but we can also expect that lots of this legislation will be raced through, that it won't necessarily receive the scrutiny that many lawyers would like it to receive. But I suppose for the Kremlin, the plus side of that is that by trying to expedite their passage, they're reducing the opportunities for different members of the elite to try and tack on their pet projects to these broader bills. And that can often happen when bills pass through the Duma, that amendments are made that often bear very little relation to the main bill uh, under consideration. I don't think we're likely to see much of that happening with these, at least with these initial eight draft bills sponsored by Putin himself. Okay, uh, Nikolai, let's get to the substance of it. Why the amendments were needed in the first place? Putin or actually anybody in his establishment haven't come up with a clear explanation as to why, have they? And how would you define the major goal behind the political amendments? Now we are in, as Ben was telling us, for a very long process of all kinds of new legislation being made. But what was the rationale for the actual reshuffling of the Constitution? Thanks, Marsha. Uh, although there are many different goals behind this, I think the dominant one is to provide Putin and his entourage with the possibility to keep in power for as long as they want. And this is perhaps the answer to your first question. That's why it has not been explained this way at uh, the very beginning. I think what is very important to understand is first that perhaps the most important amendment was added at the very final stage, which annulled previous presidential terms. And in my view, this is not only the possibility for Putin to not feel himself being short of time and not to let anybody else to think that 2024 is the end of his presidential career, but I think it's a very essential change of uh, the scenario of the whole game. And uh, in my view, it looks likely now that uh, Putin will not necessarily leave from his presidential position, but I think he will distance from everyday routine and he will become a Tsar. And recently the Kremlin did demonstrate a number of interviews with Putin to commemorate 20 years of his staying in power. And there was a question asked whether Putin is a czar or not. And his answer was very sincere, I think. He was saying that uh, he works too hardly to say that he is a czar. And in my view, what uh, can be done now is to reach this wonderful dream, to stay in power, but at the same time not to be overburdened by uh, everyday uh, responsibilities. And that's why we'll see very essential reshuffling of the whole system. It was needed just to make some, although not that many, amendments in the Constitution. But generally speaking, I think that personal reshuffling is much more important here. And the aim of this reshuffling will be to construct the system in a way 
where each and everybody will play certain function and that's all. So there would be no actors in this system, only certain functions. And this, by the way, the essence of so-called redistribution of powers, which is widely, I would say, advertised by the Kremlin. So it's not the case when certain powers are given from the president to somebody else. It's a very different case when the president can give certain function to this or that body of power, but it's not like, say, to have independent power to make decisions. Like instead of letting the Council of Federation to appointment uh, prosecutors, the Kremlin sees the role of the upper chamber in uh, participating in different kinds of consultations without saying exactly what this means to consult with the Council of Federation. And this is the essence, I think, to change the system in a way which will let Putin to switch it into autopilot regime and to stay aside, not intervening into everyday activities, but to be capable anytime if needed to intervene and to say final words. That's why I would say that, in my view, if to speak about political importance of amendments, besides this, the most important thing, like annulling previous presidential terms, I would say that, in my view, the most important changes are connected with the so-called system of public power, which is not defined by the Constitution, and which means that no more there is local self-administration as it's uh, been established by the previous constitution. Uh, local self-administration is the bottom level of this system of public power. And uh, I'm waiting for the law on the state uh, council, which perhaps is very important, but nobody knows what exactly this law is about. And in this case, I would say that in my view, it can be much more important than it's portrayed now when experts are saying that, well, the state council cannot get any additional powers because nobody lost these powers, and that's why they can operate only within their powers. It's not the fact, it's not the case. The president can uh, give them for a while, temporarily, certain presidential powers, which will make the state council very important uh, institution. And what we see now, by the way, even in the law on the government, where it's stated that ministers uh, can share their responsibility and can occupy some other positions, it means that, uh, in my view, it means that they can get official positions at the state council, and uh, it will make the system very different from what it is now. So to summarize, I would say that in my view, not that much the constitutional reform is important, but the fact that the whole political regime is transforming and the constitution should not restrict this transformation. Here is the major aim, in my view, of the whole reform. Yeah, that's really interesting. The picture that you've portrayed is Putin as the ultimate czar, the ultimate ruler, being totally flexible in redistributing functions as he sees fit. 
This probably follows the same logic that there has been about the Russian government and about Russian government management. But my question is, if Putin wants to be even more flexible and redistributing functions as he likes, why the need for so many formalities? Why keep Duma so busy with codification and recodification and adjustment and readjustment, the functions that are on the books, the written functions? What is the purpose of that? Why the need for 206 amendments? Why the need for over 100 new pieces of legislation that the Duma will have to work on if all Putin needs is to have the ultimate power, the power of the ultimate ruler? Well, there are different explanations, alternative explanations. One, the easiest one is just to follow Sherlock Holmes' logics to hide a tree, you should go to the forest. That's why we do have so many amendments. Some of them do not have any real sense, and uh, they're aimed to make the whole process and to make the new version of the Constitution attractive to, well, elderly, attractive to different layers in Russian society. The other set of amendments was aimed to legalize, to constitutionalize what is already in place. Like, say, we do not have local self-administration de facto as such for many years, and now we'll not have local self-administration de jure. And this is, by the way, very important. Uh, we should not underestimate the essence of these changes. And finally, there is a set of really important amendments and uh, I think that nobody now can make final conclusions about what is the most important one before we see the whole uh, picture. And perhaps Putin is uh, flexible enough to change his mind, just like we've uh, seen it in, in March. So I think that this is first explanation. Another one is that Putin, and he was saying this many times, uh, is legalist in the sense that he got this legal education, and that's why he wants, at least uh, at the surface, to demonstrate that all these procedures are legal, and the fact that uh, there is a violation of the Constitution, which did exist in the whole process, that's why I think it's very important to follow certain legal restrictions in small details, to hide the fact that, in general, it's illegal, and the new constitution, in general, doesn't have any real legal force. And uh, anyway, I think that it's very important for the political regime to make everybody busy, to think about where their chair stay after the reform, and not to intervene into the general political process, but to fight for certain little benefits and that's my third explanation. Okay. Masha. Um, ben, I wonder what you think about that. And yeah. uh, not just yourself, but you have observed the Russian Duma closely for many years now. Do you think the Duma members will be surprised, outraged to hear such an explanation of what their function is? That basically this whole legislative process is aimed at keeping them busy and keeping Putin power unconstrained. Uh, is there a realization among Duma members of this kind of raison d'etre for the Russian legislature? And what do you personally think about that? 
Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And I suppose it gets to the heart of one of the persistent questions in Russian politics, which is this tension, this tug of war between personalism and institutionalism, lack of rules, uh, and really rules being absolutely everywhere, and there being too many rules. I think State Duma deputies privately will agree. And in fact, some of them have gone on the record. So maybe expressing what should be, um, at least if they're thinking strategically, private thoughts and stating them publicly. Uh, but they do admit that sometimes their role as State Duma deputies can be to distract from actually where the real decisions are made and to provide some type of democratic veneer as to how politics actually operates. But I think the reason why so many resources are invested in what might be regarded as just uh, sort of an elaborate distraction from how decisions are actually made is because to quite a significant degree, which can often be forgotten, especially when Western commentators are talking about Russia, and when I say Western, I mean commentators, say in North America and in Western Europe, it's that they forget that one of the pillars of legitimacy for the current regime in Russia is precisely at least a rhetorical commitment to constitutionalism, to the rule of law, to some form of democracy. If Putin were to go on national TV tomorrow and say, look, everybody, we all know the game that's taking place. Let's just rip up the constitution and everybody look to me for decision making. We know that that would be deeply unpopular, both within the elite, but also within the public. We've seen polling data suggesting that Putin's zeroing amendment, so the amendment, of course, that was formally proposed by Valentina Tereshkova on the 10th of March in the second reading of Putin's constitutional reform bill. We know that that change, allowing Putin to stand again in 2024 and possibly again in 2030 if he decides to stand again for the presidency, we know that that was unpopular because it's a very clear way in which the rules are being changed to suit one person. Putin, even if the Kremlin was taking many steps to make it seem as though this constitutional reform moment was about many other things and wasn't really to do with Putin being able to stay in the presidency. So I think, Masha, getting back to your point, lots of State Duma deputies, I imagine, in private would admit that they are far from important political players in the Russian political system. Some Duma deputies are more influential than others. So I've mentioned Pavel Krasheninikov. He does have the expertise, the proven loyalty, the personal connections to be able to turn around occasionally to the government and certain ministers and say, I disagree with that decision, here's a better one. My research has certainly pointed to particular moments when that when that's happened. But, but for the majority of Duma deputies, um, they're, they're far from influential political players. But publicly, they want to make it seem as though they are. Uh, and the reason why, again, to summarise, why I think that so much is put into this parliamentary practice, these rule changes, is because of this basic legitimizing function of constitutionalism and the rule of law. So from what Nikolai was saying, one of the points that he made was that a position of a Russian lawmaker in the federal legislature in the Duma is a highly coveted position. Today, a vast majority of those coveted positions belong to United Russia. Ben, you were saying earlier that bills coming from the Kremlin administration pass very smoothly. There is barely any discussion. So is this the case because of the solid majority of United Russia? Do you expect the Communist Party or Zhirinovsky's party, the so-called Liberal Democratic Party, to create at least mild obstacles to this smooth transition, to this uh, smooth process? 
Do mm-hmm. you believe that the Communist Party faction has become more or less amenable lately, um, mm-hmm. given local races on uh, August 13 and other factors, maybe? Yeah, I think for these bills that have been introduced by the president that are implementing the constitutional changes, given United Russia's supermajority, they would pass through very easily, even if all the non-United Russia political parties were to vote against. But I don't think it's likely that they're going to be putting up that resistance. One indication of that is that on the 6th of October, Putin met with leaders of the state Duma political party factions, and he stressed the importance of consensus, that insofar as these are bills that he has personally introduced, that they relate to a constitutional project that he is personally invested in, he would like it such that these bills are approved by all parties within the Duma. So even though when it's just a numbers game, United Russia would be enough, when it comes to the optics and to legitimacy, Putin wants consensus. And that's really interesting when we look at what the Communist Party did during the nationwide vote. They called on Russian citizens to vote against these particular changes. And so one might imagine that as these eight draft bills are introduced by Putin, that the Communist Party would carry on that resistance, that challenge to the implementation of the constitutional changes. But from what we've seen so far, it doesn't look like they're going to mount any serious challenge to the bills nor does it look like LDPR are going to mount a serious challenge, uh, not to mention just Russia. And I think that suggests some quite serious backroom deal-making, that we know that the Communist Party faced difficulty in registering some electoral candidates for the 13th of September elections. And so even though we often characterize them correctly, I would say, as uh, the leading systemic opposition party. So by systemic opposition party, I mean uh, a party that sometimes will act in an oppositional fashion, sometimes will do things that push back against the Kremlin's position on things, but actually they can be relied upon to fall in line when things matter. It could be that insofar as they were maybe more boldly and more publicly pushing back against the Kremlin, that the Kremlin has reached a deal with them, that the uh, presidential administration has said, you can have a healthy proportion of seats in the eight convocation of the Duma that's going to be elected next year in 2021, in exchange for you being less oppositional now, including not mounting a serious challenge to these bills introduced by Putin implementing changes to the constitution. And it could have something to do with deal-making between the Communist Party and the presidential administration regarding how the new parties that have been backed by the Kremlin fit into its vision for the next convocation of the Duma. So, you know, to cut a long story short, the Kremlin, if it wanted to, could just rely on United Russia to pass these bills through, but it wants to project an image of consensus. And in order to manufacture that consensus, it's having to reach agreements with the Communist Party especially, and that's likely got something to do with the seats that they can, to a greater or less extent, be guaranteed in the next Duma convocation. Right. You mentioned new parties. We'll uh, get to them a bit later. But now I would like to turn to Nikolai again. Nikolai, you were talking about state council and how it might become much more important, even though there is still no clear idea as to just how it will be reconfigured or further empowered. 
There was also talk, especially early before the constitutional amendments were finally adopted, that the Federal Council, the upper house of the Russian parliament, will also gain more significance. And indeed, there have been some changes. Would you please talk about that, the Federation Council and how it may have changed and will probably be changed in the future? If to speak about the Federation Council, it is already one of the most mighty upper chambers in the world, according to Alfred Stepan, for example. It's the second uh, most influential upper chamber in terms of its powers. The problem I see is connected not with these powers, but with the fact that its composition is totally defined by the Kremlin. And what we see now, it's switched to a little bit different model when 35 senators will be appointed by the president and probably by President Putin, meaning that not only the Kremlin, which after probable Putin's resignation, for example, will be not that directly controlled by him, but he himself will now define composition of this upper chamber. And uh, I would not see any expansion of its powers due to amendments. The fact that they will be consulted doesn't mean that they will play any significant role, but we need to, to look at what will go on. So far, we do see very serious reshuffling of the upper echelon of the Council of Federation. So Valentina Matvienka, the speaker, is still in place, but there are two new deputy speakers, and the head of uh, analytical department is the guy from Narishkin, which makes these rumors that uh, Sergei Narishkin can perhaps replace Valentina Matvienka pretty soon, having certain ground. If to speak about the state council, well, it's uh, easy to speculate now because we do not uh, have uh, even draft law on the state council. But the way how it looks now, it's called now the expanded meeting of the state council presidium. And this is very interesting body, which did appear in 2018. It consists of, well, half of governors, all deputy prime ministers and certain key ministers and uh, top officials from the presidential administration, meaning that this is exactly the second from the top layer of the whole state system, of the whole state management. And I think this is the way how the state council will look in this draft law we're waiting for now. Recently, uh, there was uh, Putin's meeting in this format. And I would say that, in my view, the system we'll see in future will be not very different from what we see now, starting from March, when there used to be a working group of uh, the state council led by Sergei Sabyanin, which was one of the major decision-making centers. There was the government, there was operative headquarters, and there was Putin staying somewhere aside. And in my view, this is dream scheme of how the state management uh, will look like all these reforms in Putin's view. If to speak about what's going on with judiciary and how it leads the field, I would say that, in my view, the key element of this transformation was replacement of the prosecutor general, 
and it was zeroing of all concessions, of all agreements with major elite groups, which all of a sudden became vulnerable. So that's why we do not see any activism from their side, because they are on the hook. Nobody knows how the new prosecution office will rate with regard to them, and everybody knows that each and every top member of Russian elite did violate so many different laws and regulations that it's not a problem to punish him or her absolutely legally due to all these uh, violations. Judiciary should be uh, reshuffled as well, and we do have two old mammoths of the Supreme and of the Constitutional Court, which are pretty old and which uh, will be replaced, I think, very soon. But what we see now, it's uh, uh, just like in case of the Federation Council, is reshuffling at the second top level of the Supreme Court, where there are new deputy chairmen and where even the head of the most important regional Moscow city court, who was staying in power since the year 2000, has been replaced uh, pretty recently. So the replacement of Vyacheslav Lebedev, the chairman of the Supreme Court, and of Valery Zorkin, the chairman of the Constitutional Court, I think can take place by the end of this year. You mentioned that the elites have become more vulnerable, maybe, because of the uncertainty. Would you also say that there is evidence that the Kremlin is further hardening its policy towards members of the elites of the establishment? Or is it generally the same trend as in the past two or three years? We've been discussing various institutions, the Judiciary, Council of Federation, State Council, the Duma. We have not even touched upon the formidable force of Siloviki. Well, of course, the prosecutor general's office qualifies as Siloviki. So do you think that the current reform in the amendments or in the informal redistribution of authority portends further empowerment of Siloviki? They are likely to become an even more formidable force. Or do you think the Putin keeps in mind the necessity, the need to hold them in check? And where in the new configuration, formal or informal, do you see a trend one way or another? First of all, I think that Siliviki, although they're very powerful and more powerful than they used to be a while ago, they do play instrumental role and uh, they are not political actors. So they are serving Putin's or the Kremlin's interests. And as long as we are waiting for the very important personal replacements at at least half of Siloviki agencies, meaning FSB, Ministry of Interior, Investigative Committee, Security Council, perhaps, uh, where there are old leaders. And in 2016, we've already seen uh, how it can take place when not only bosses of major Siloviki agencies have been replaced, but the whole leadership has been reshuffled in a very essential way. And in my view, the second stage of Siloviki replacements, of Siloviki reshuffling, will take place pretty soon. So their role is very important, although it's the role of an instrument in hands of Putin, in hands of the Kremlin. And the fact that in case of those agencies where this reshuffling took place a couple of years ago, we do not see any influential persons 
at uh, the top of these agencies. And this, I think, corresponds to the concept I was trying to explain that each and everybody in this new dream Putin's political system will play the role of an instrument of certain function without having his or her uh, personal ambitions and political ambitions. Masha? Okay, yes, I'll be very glad to, to hear what you think about that. But also, <laughs> in my last question to you, I would like to hear your opinion about the new Duma design come 2021. But of course, please uh, tell us what you think about what Nikolai has just said. Thanks. Sorry about that. I wasn't going to respond to what Nikolai said about the Siloviki. Of course, I agree with everything that he mentioned. I was going to go back to your question about the Federation Council and the rumors that have been swirling about changes to its possible role in the Russian political system. I think we have to point to something that happened on the 23rd of September. Putin went to the Federation Council and made a speech. And there was sort of nervous excitement around it, people thinking, that this could be the opportunity where he was going to unveil this new revamped position, this uh, revamped conception of what the Federation Council, the role that it could play in the political system. People thought that maybe Putin would announce some of these 30 senators that he's allowed now to appoint directly, seven of whom can be lifetime appointments. But there was nothing like that whatsoever. It was a bit of a disappointment. And it, I think, has led people to step back and question whether there are going to be any major institutional reforms beyond the ones that we're aware of now. Uh, but I would then go back to something that Nikolai has also mentioned, and that relates to the State Council, that of these eight draft bills, uh, a bill on the State Council is notable by its absence. And so there is, again, fevered speculation about what could be included in the draft law whenever it's introduced. And I want to underscore this phrase that is included in the new version of the Constitution of Unified System of Public Power. I think we're going to be hearing uh, a lot about that going forward. Nicola has already mentioned that it is not yet defined in legislation. It's not defined. It's mentioned, but it's not defined in some of these draft bills. And so it provides an unknown area, a black box, a box of possibilities that I think lots of members of the elite are thinking could provide some type of transformative element that we haven't yet seen going forward in the in the political system. But you asked me to talk about the future possible composition of the State Duma as well. Oh, right. Think, let, me, let me interrupt you yeah. for a second. So we have been talking about the high echelons of power, about powers that be. Uh, there is still a very important factor, still a very important one in Russia, and that is the Russian people. And if the Russian people matter, it is, of course, in the popular vote. There will be a popular vote in 2021. And despite the very tight political control that the Kremlin has, still, this is something that, you know, depends on how people vote. So what do you expect from the popular vote, from the fact that uh, United Russia is not as popular as it used to be, it probably never was very popular? Do you think that it has a good chance or not a very good chance of preserving its supermajority? And if not that, then what? Yeah, at the beginning of 2018, according to the Levada Center, the approval rating 
well, actually, the, the proportion of Russians who said that they would be willing to vote for the party if elections are in the coming Sunday was around 50%. But now it's just above 30%. And that's a really tricky situation for the Kremlin if they want to re-secure a supermajority of seats in the state Duma on the back purely of United Russia. I'm sure all the listeners will be aware, but just a reminder that there are 450 seats in the state Duma, 225 of them are filled by single mandate district races, so first past the post, and then the other 225 are filled by party list proportional representation. I think the answer to how the Kremlin is thinking about the elections and how they can get the best result possible hoping that as many Russian citizens as possible will vote in a way that the Kremlin approves and so the authorities won't have to rely on forms of manipulation to get the results uh, that it wants. Uh, They're going to be focusing on the single mandate districts and we know that United Russia has uh, been speaking incredibly confidently about winning the vast majority of those first-past-the-post races. And the 13th of September elections provided a dress rehearsal where the authorities could test out different ways in which they could change the rules and maybe resort to forms of manipulation that include but aren't limited to ballot stuffing, so things like barring certain candidates from running, things like disproportionate media attention to authority-backed candidates. So the 13th of September, I think, uh, gives a guide as to how the Kremlin is hoping it can re-secure a majority or a supermajority when United Russia's essentially approval rating is so low. And so I think that's uh, really, you know, the, the situation as the Kremlin sees it. We know that they, the Kremlin has backed these new parties as possible ways to capture different segments of the electorate if United Russia really does collapse, if approval in it collapses so that uh, it really can't be relied on to uh, get a majority in the state Duma. But I'd say that, that I don't think the Kremlin is expecting that, you know, new people or for truth or green alternative uh, are going to be, you know, are going to end up with a serious number of seats in the state Duma elections in 2021. It's just a contingency plan. And one of several contingency plans that also has the happy added bonus of, you know, these new parties being something new on the political scene, being an element of rejuvenation in the political system. When people look at the state of Duma, they see the leaders of the political party factions within it and see people who've been on the political scene for a very, very long time. If Putin is turning to the people and saying, I'm also going to be around for longer, then I imagine the Kremlin is going to be looking for as many other opportunities as possible for change, for difference. And so if these new parties can at least get a couple of seats in the state Duma, that will be possible. Okay, Uh, so from what I've heard uh, from both of you, it seems that uh, Putin, in fact, has still has a very firm grip on on power. And those who have been saying over the years that maybe he is there, he's still the president, he's still nominally the the leader. Well, there may be other people backstage who are more influential. From what you say, uh, neither of you seems to agree to that. And also, and this is my last Last question to both of you. Do you agree that Putin still has a very firm grip on, on power? And even if we believe what uh, what Nikolai is saying, uh, can even afford to somehow distance from day-to-day government management. And this probably means that there is no 
political destabilization or major change or any kind of turmoil in store for Russia. So do you agree or disagree with that? And please be brief. Uh, Nikolai, can you be the first? Okay, recently Gleb Pavlovsky, uh, when describing Russian political system now, used the image of a jelly, meaning that there is nothing solid, the construction is very flexible, and in my view, this, that's, that's right, it's easy to transform the system when it's in this shape, but risks are very high, risks of what can happen in, uh, if Putin as the single major decision maker. And I do agree that we do not need hypothesis that uh, there are some influential persons uh, behind him. He looks uh, like the major decision maker. So in case of his inability to make decisions, to manage, the system can, can collapse. That's why I would say that although Putin looks very, very influential uh, leader in Russian authoritarian personalistic system, it doesn't mean that A, he uh, is capable uh, to come with all these transformation scenarios uh, he's thinking about, and B, in case if uh, his transformation is uh, done, is effective, the system which will appear will be uh, flexible enough and capable to survive for long. Okay, Dan, what would you say? I'd say that I've been studying Russian politics for long enough to know that making predictions is a very dangerous game. So I'm not going to give a prediction as to where I see the regime being in a year or a couple of years' time. I would point, though, to the increasing costs that seem to be required by the authorities in order to get the electoral results that they want. And we saw that in the 13th of September elections, the growing list in the menu of manipulation, the different ways in which the authorities need to do things in order to get the results that they want. And if we just look at that, then we can sort of extrapolate and see that in order to get a supermajority in 2021, the authorities are really going to have to work incredibly hard. Now, one response to that could be that the authorities just change the nature of their regime and remove the influence that the, you know, the impact that the, that the popular vote can have on the operation of the regime. Uh, and so the nature of, of politics might change. But I think the authorities are very aware of what happened, say, uh, at the end of the um, 20th century in Mexico. The ruling regime had been around for decades, but it lost the national elections, it lost control of the parliament, and then quickly the nature of politics changed. So the nature of politics in Russia could change incredibly quickly, say if the Kremlin lost a pro-executive majority in the state Duma, but they're well aware of that, which is why they're investing so much in trying to make sure that doesn't happen right now. Indeed, but you said uh, you wouldn't forecast for a year, year and a half ahead. But Duma election is scheduled for September 2021. And you, I think you sounded pretty confident that they, the Kremlin would manage and would manage to keep either a united Russia supermajority or somehow uh, manage the system so that the Duma uh, remains a pliable instrument in the hands of the Kremlin. Is that right? Yes, I, I think so. So maybe when I say I'm, I'm not going to 
um, uh, make predictions for the next year or a couple of years, let's say five, that would be a happy compromise. It takes me okay. out, but slight contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> so let's end on a happy compromise. Thank you both. Thank you, Nikolai. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Masha. Thank you. Thank you.